Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 together. And we are uh, walking through the Gospel of Matthew, and this morning we find ourselves in a very common, a very well-known passage called the Lord's Prayer. And I want to entitle this sermon this morning, Jesus, Teach Us to Pray. And the reason we're going to entitle that is because uh, in Luke and here, Jesus is actually telling us how we should pray. And I want to read this together, and we will jump in to, with our time together. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Father, help us as we look at how Jesus taught us to pray. And I pray that this prayer would instruct us more and more to be people who commune with you and have our lives shaped by this prayer. So God, we ask for your help this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things about prayer that I hear regularly is I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to pray for. Sometimes you feel really selfish when you go to God and you just continually have this list of things that you want to ask God for, right? And then you get all done with your prayer and you're like, man, I just asked God for 500 things and I didn't worship Him at all. So then you come on to the other side of the, the coin and you're like, all right, I just need to pray and thank God and tell Him who He is for five hours. And then you get all done and you're like, well, I didn't ask for anything for myself. What is in it for me? I don't know if you have that tension, but lots of times I feel like, we battle that tension, like, should I be asking for God or worshiping God? And I think the Lord's Prayer instructs us how to actually incorporate both of those realities together. How to actually pray in a way that brings honor and glory to God, but also is about us and what we need. And so what I want to do this morning is just kind of walk through a couple, what I'm going to call structural things to help us get an idea of what this prayer is, how it's structured, how it's laid out. And then each one of these petitions could be its own sermon, sermon in which we have done this. We have a sermon series called Jesus Teach Us to Pray. And I'm, not going to, I'm just going to walk through each one of these six petitions quickly. And you're like, quickly? You've not, you can't say your name quickly. Well... We'll, we'll try. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the structure. The first thing I want you to see is that the, in these six petitions, each of these petitions are what I'm going to call a command. It's like an imperative. We are actually, this is interesting, Jesus says when you pray, in a sense, commands that God will do something. I don't know about you, but how many of you struggle with the idea of commanding God to do something? <laughs> God, do that. But it's interesting, these petitions, each one of them is an imperative. It is, God, sanctify your name. God, come. 
Come, your kingdom is literally the expression in Greek. God, be done your will on earth as is in heaven. God, give. God, forgive. God, rescue. So what I see, interestingly enough, is that in this prayer, the audacity that Jesus, in a sense, gives to his followers to, in a sense, make a demand on God. And when we walk through these six petitions, I think it'll become clearer and clearer, make it more plain, that we can actually have the audacity, in a sense, to command God to do these things. Why? Because at the end of the day, these things are all about God. And making God's name and God's will and God's kingdom be known and seen and experienced by all. So first of all, I want us to see that these six petitions are all imperatives. Number two, I want to look at the structure. These six imperatives can then be structured into two sections. The first section that I have on the screen for you is all about God's mission. What is God's purpose in creation? What is God on a mission doing in this world? And these first three are all about God and what he's up to in the world. And he wants, number one, for us to pray that God's name be known. That God's name be set apart from all the other names in creation. Number two, he wants God's kingdom to come in its fullness to be completely and finally here. We're praying for that. And we're praying for God's will that is done in heaven to be done on earth. And we're going to walk through a little bit more what these look like. But the idea is that we are praying for what God's purposes in creation to become a reality. Number two, the second set of petitions are all about us our needs in God's missions, God's mission. As God is going about making his name known and his kingdom coming and his will being done on earth as it is in heaven, the way that that is actually going to be accomplished is through his people. And we're going to talk what that means in a minute. But when God's name, kingdom, and will are to be done on earth, through us, there are hindrances There are distractions. And so we now pray against hindrances, against distractions. Number one, we pray for our needs. We pray for our daily provision needed to do God's mission. Number two, we pray for forgiveness in unity in our relationships. And we pray that the evil one would be kept away. And we're going to, like I said, I'm trying not to delve into this, but can you see how each one of those are hindrances? If we're going to be a people who are going to be the ones who set apart God's name and be the people who demonstrate the kingdom realities are present, and we're going to be a people that demonstrate God's will being done here on earth, what keeps us from being people like that? People who are worried about tomorrow rather than today. People who can't get along with each other. If we can't get along with each other, no way is God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will being done. And the greatest distraction that we have is the evil one who is always working against us. And so this is the structure of the mission that we, of the prayer, I should say, is that we are praying for God to do these things through us and then to allow us to be the people who can actually accomplish that. And so Jesus' prayer 
on the next slide, not only instructs our mind as to what we should be praying for, but it also reorients our loves such that the prayer begins to shape the very way we live our lives. Like, what I'm helping us see is that prayer here is actually shaping and forming us. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, it's not just asking God to do things and hope He does it. But it is actually should be shaping us. That as we pray the Lord's Prayer over and over again, it should be reorienting our mind that we are about God's story, God's mission, and that we need our daily bread and we need right relationships with people and we need the enemy to be put aside. So prayer becomes not just a thing to ask God for, but a thing to fellowship with God and to be able to commune with Him and have our lives shaped by this prayer. So prayer becomes the primary means by which our lives are changed to savor and experience the beauty of the living God. It is through prayer that we fellowship with God in this intimate way, such that we can, are able to experience His presence. It shapes us. It shapes our worldview. We need to remember that God is not a static, static like standalone concept to be studied. He's a real living being who is seeking His own glory for the happiness of creation. He is dynamically working. He is pursuing us. He's pursuing His name. He's pursuing His glory. He's pursuing His kingdom. And sometimes I think we just perceive God as someone who's up there as a cosmic genie. That we pray our prayers and He sends down our candy. We put in our coins and out comes our food. God is not just some cosmic genie that we send our prayers up to. No, He is dynamically moving all of creation to His intended ends through His people, and this is what the Lord's Prayer is all about. It's about a missional God using His missional people to accomplish His purposes. So, with that structure, the six imperatives, the two sections, God's mission and our part in God's mission, and seeing how that all of this prayer should be shaping our life, let's look at each one of these petitions. Petition number one, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's interesting, he starts out with this concept of our Father, not my Father. Why? Because this prayer is to shape a communal life, not an individual life. This prayer is to shape the church, not just my life. That we should actually be people who, if you watched my video from last week, we should be people who don't just retreat to pray alone, but we retreat with God's people to pray. That this prayer should be shaping the life of the church who have a common Father. We're not to pray in, in splendid isolation and, and understand our spirituality in individual terms, like this rugged individualism that is so prevalent in our society, and this rugged individualism that is prominent in the American culture has now pervaded the church, and we have this rugged individual spirituality that I must be the Rambo Christian. Okay, and I want you to know, you're not the Rambo Christian. If there's a Rambo, this is where I'm going to get struck with lightning, it's Jesus. He's Rambo. He's the single guy who goes in and defeats everyone. We're all the sheep. Do you know how dumb sheep are? 
I watched a video that I should have kept it and shown you how dumb sheep are. We're not rugged, we're not strong, we're stupid and weak and run along our own ways all the time. And yet Jesus is constantly bringing us back. There, there's this understanding that this is a communal thing. We're together. Our Father. And this is a very interesting phrase because not until the New Testament is God regularly talked about His Father. You can find it here and there in some Jewish writings before Jesus' time. But when Jesus comes and the New Testament writers pick up on this understanding, God as a Father becomes a very unique and prominent understanding of who God is. And you, I'm just going to say this nicely. Sometimes we use this phrase like, God is like my daddy. You ever heard that? Like, he's my daddy. And we go to that Greek word, Abba, meaning father. And he is your dad. What I just want to be careful is that we don't bring God down to a human father. But I also don't want to keep God distance. See, I think what Jesus is helping us see is that there is this intimate relationship between the father and his children. So that a right understanding of a father, a right understanding of a dad, has authority, it has reverence. But in that authority and reverence, there is unique intimacy. There's the ability that a, a child, children should have to come and ask their father anything and not be afraid of being cast out. A, a child should be able to come to his father and share all that is going on. And this is what God is saying. I am, in a sense, stooping down and coming to you as a father, as one who deeply loves you, who is intimately concerned for you. And so the... The, the address, the way that this prayer begins is this corporate nature that we together have this unique Father who deeply cares for us. And he says this in the first petition, God, hallow be your name. Okay? Who knows what hallowed means? You use that this week? That was your vocabulary word for the week, right? Okay, it, it's a word that simply means to set apart. To hallow here means to sanctify, to, to make it unique, to separate it from everyone else. And so what Jesus is asking us to pray is he's commanding God to make his name be separate, be unique, be distinct from every other name. See, in the, in the ancient world, in the Semitic world, a person's name is closely related to what he is. Okay, and we don't always do this in our day, but your name, in a sense, represented who you were. And you remember Jacob in the Old Testament, what his name means? Deceiver, supplanter. And that's what his life becomes. Like, the name begins to characterize him. Or, or Israel, God's name that he gives to Jacob after he wrestles with God. And it's one who wrestles with God. And so there's this name identity that is given. And, and when we ask God to hollow his name, we're not just saying make your name distinct and better than all names, but make what your name is be present everywhere. And when we look at the name of God in the Old Testament, what are some names that are representative of who God is in the Old Testament? 
He is Jehovah, right? That's the name of God. I am. I exist. Or El Elyon, the God of all gods, the highest of gods. Or Jehovah Jireh, the one who provides. The Lord Almighty, the one who is righteousness. And as we think of the character of God hidden behind these names, we are to pray, God, make your name and what that name stands for become a reality in this world. Number two, we pray for God's kingdom to come. The second part deals with God's mission in a different way. Rather than God's name being distinct from all other names and his character being demonstrated in all of the world, now we're praying for the kingdom of God to come. In Genesis chapter 3, there's a serpent who snuck into a garden. And when he snuck into the garden, rather than Adam and Eve stepping on the head of the serpent and crushing it and dismissing the evil from creation, they gave into that deceiver, into that snake's temptation. And when they did that, the rule and the reign of God that he had given to humanity had now been lost and now had been transferred over to this serpent, which is why the New Testament says the God of this age that there is a God, a ruler, who is ruling and reigning over this world, and that was taken away from Adam and Eve, away from humanity, and now resides in Satan himself. And one of the primary missions of Jesus when he came was to actually overcome the power and the rule of that serpent, that devil. And so when Jesus comes and starts pronouncing the kingdom of God is here, one of the things he's primarily saying is that the ruler of this age and his power over this world is now coming to an end. So that when Jesus asks us to pray for his rule and his reign over all the earth, he is actually asking that the powers of evil, the powers of darkness, the power of sin and death be actually taken away from creation. So that now life and righteousness and joy can actually dominate and reign in this world. One of the things we have come to see in the book of Matthew is that this kingdom has already come in the person of Jesus. The rule and reign of God has already come so that on the cross, Jesus dealt Satan a death blow. In a sense, I use, I think the image that helps me is he took a sword and he stabbed Satan in the gut and the, and, the, and the wound is so deep and it's so powerful that there's no one who can fix it. Like he is dying. He's bleeding out. There's no way he can recover from that wound. And so he's a conquered enemy that is on his last breath until Jesus comes back a second time and he will completely destroy that serpent's. This is what we're praying for, is that the end will come. We're praying that, Jesus, will you come and finally put an end to the serpent's reign? Number three, Jesus says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We've talked about God's name. We're going to talk about God's glory being evidenced and seen across the world. 
We've talked about God's kingdom, His rule, and His reign coming. And now Jesus gives us another picture into what God's mission is. The picture here is God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven is another dimension. Okay, and this is where, like, Stranger Things and these crazy shows that we like with other dimensions is helpful. Because heaven is a dimension where God currently exists. Heaven is, is the control room. It's the place where God, in a sense, is organizing and orchestrating all of his creational purposes. And it's almost like it's a veil that's right there. It's like right behind it. We just haven't been able to tear back the veil and to see heaven. But when we understand that this is where our God is, he resides in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases up there, we know that his will, his righteousness, his life is perfectly expressed. It's perfectly enjoyed. There is no evil done in that dimension. And we are praying that that dimension will actually become a reality in our dimension, in our reality. So what we're actually praying for is the end of the story in Revelation chapter 21, a wedding, a unification, a union between the dimension of heaven and the dimension of earth. That one day when Jesus comes back, that veil that, that separates heaven from earth will actually be pulled back so that now heaven and earth will become one reality in God's presence, in his dwelling place, in his control room will no longer be separate from us, but will actually come and be a part of this creational world. And what's interesting is when we pray for God to make His glory known, and when we pray for the kingdom of God to come, and when we pray for God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven, you know what we're also asking in that prayer? That we would be about those things. This isn't, God, you do that. Yes, God, you do that, but you do that through us. This is like, in a sense, a very powerful prayer that we don't just recite it over and over and over again because it's the Lord's Prayer. But it should be a prayer where we are constantly being engaged that this is the point of our lives. Why do we exist? Why does the church exist in the story of God? To actually be the people through which all the nations of the earth will experience the glory of God, the kingdom of God, actually experience God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. We're not simply asking God to do it. We're actually asking God to change us to be the people who will actually be the way that these prayer requests are answered. And as we go about accomplishing these tasks, that we have our minds be shaped by the mission of God and be shaped by His purposes, we then conclude with these three final petitions, which are all hindrances to us being a part of what God is doing in the world. The first petition, the first hindrance, is give us our daily bread. Give us our daily bread. Distraction number one is we worry about our needs. You know what distracts us from God's mission? Is accomplishing our own mission. And not being able to accomplish our own mission because we never can. We're constantly worrying about it. Our bank account, our bills, our children, everything is all these worries because we're in investment in our kingdom. Investment in our glory. We're investment in Scott's will being done on earth as it is in Scott's minds. 
And so we have all of these worries that come. And Jesus says the first hindrance to actually being God's people is worrying about future. Interesting, he says, give us tomorrow's bread or what day's bread? Today's bread. See, in Jesus' day, laborers were commonly paid each day for their work that they had achieved for that day. So, like, I would go to work for one day. I, I was, let's say, I made $15 an hour. I worked eight hours. At the end of the day, I'd be given 120 bucks. And at the end of the day, you'd use that money to buy food. And most of the time, you only had enough money to buy food for the next day so that you were constantly worrying about when your next job was coming, when your next meal was coming. And in that society, it was largely agrarian, very farmer lifestyle. One crop failure could be a major disaster. And so in such a society, to pray, give us today our daily bread, was no empty rhetoric. Probably for most of us, we're not worried about today's food. It's in your refrigerator. You're not worried about next month's food because it's already made in your freezer. And yet, in that day, it was a very precarious existence. Jesus' followers were to trust that every day God would provide the money and the food that they need to actually be about his mission. Sadly, our wealth has contributed to great thanklessness and to much of our spiritual bankruptcy. I'm not saying get rid of all your money and just start praying that God give you money for one day. What I'm asking you to think about is, are you worried about building your own kingdom, the money that you have in your bank account, the time that you want to do with your time? Or are you worried about today? God, what today do I need to do to be worried about today, to be about your mission? See, to be about God's glory, God's kingdom, God's will, means that we are not worried about tomorrow. Matthew 6, in a few weeks, we'll get there. He says in verse 34, Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I love that. Like, you're worried about tomorrow? You don't even know how... You, if you're worried about tomorrow, it's because you don't understand today. There's a lot to worry about today. And Jesus is saying, God, as we're people who are about your mission, give us today's bread. Give us the sustenance that we need to be the people who have the energy to make your name known. Number two, petition five, the second one for us. I'm going to spend a little bit more time on. It says, and forgive us as we have also forgiven others. Distraction number two is not just worried about our own kingdoms and our own futures, but number two, the second distraction, is what I'm going to call unreconciled relationships. Forgiveness is one of the hardest things to do as disciples of Jesus. It goes against the very nature of who we are as people. Anyone who thinks forgiveness is easy has never been greatly sinned against or naive about what forgiveness actually is. This is why we greatly admire people who have gone through great and terrible tragedies and can truly forgive them. 
This is why the story of people like Jim Elliott and the Alka Indians who actually was murdered by these Indians and all the wives forgave that tribe and continued to give their lives for them and saw the tribe come to Jesus. We revel in that story because it's so amazing that they would forgive these people. Forgiveness isn't natural. And the more you've been sinned against, the harder it is to forgive. And yet, forgiveness is not something we regularly ask for. When was the last time you asked someone to forgive you? And just think of how many times you asked someone to forgive you, and then how many times you've actually sinned in the last day. Knowing that all of your sins affect every relationship that you're in. And so we don't ask for forgiveness. We trivialize forgiveness. Instead of genuine forgiveness towards our neighbor, we generally exercise what I call tolerance. Well, they did that to me, but I'm a Christian. I'll just go and I'll, you know, I'll just be there. There's like this pseudo-forgiveness. Everything is okay, but internally, you are harboring bitterness. You're anger at them. Every time they're around, you're like, ooh. And when that's the case, it's because, number one, you think you've obtained the moral high grounds. I don't know about you, but when I was married, most of my fights were because I had moral high grounds. Do you know what I mean by moral high grounds? Um, it's, it's the idea that I'm better than you, I was acting righteously, and you forgave, or you hurt me. So you're not the, I'm the person who was sinned against, you're the sinner. That makes me morally superior to you. And so we have this idea of moral high grounds. And until you reach my level of morality, I'm not going to forgive you. And so we play the moral high ground card that keeps us from actually truly forgiving each other. Or we don't forgive each other until the pain that has been afflicted upon us, inflicted upon us, has been inflicted upon the other person. Do you know why you don't forgive people? It's because they have hurt you deeply. And they deserve to feel that deep pain too. You hurt me this bad? Well, I'm not going to do anything to you until you feel how deeply you've hurt me. You ever felt like that? There's this deep understanding the pain that I've experienced. You have to experience too. And the irony of all that is when the other person experiences all that pain, and maybe they experience more, does it really bring you joy? No. You know why? Because forgiveness involves at least two things. Number one, forgiveness requires that someone take the hit and absorb the evil. Tim Keller says it this way, mercy and forgiveness must be free and unmerited to the wrongdoer. If the wrongdoer has to do something to merit it, then it isn't mercy. But forgiveness always comes at a cost to the one granting the forgiveness. What does that mean? Someone has to take away the pain. Someone has to absorb the hurt. Someone has to absorb the anger and the wrath. Because this is what Jesus did for us. There's not, we have to pay enough merit and do enough good works or feel the pain that Jesus felt for us so that we would have forgiveness. No, what did he do? He took all of the pain, all of the wrath upon himself, and he absorbed it. So that now, not only did he absorb it, he can actually treat us like brothers and sisters. 
He doesn't have animosity towards you. He doesn't feel dirty when he's around you. He doesn't feel bitterness and harshness and rage when he's around you. Why? Because he was one who was able to absorb all of that upon himself. And until you can absorb all of the pain and the infliction that other people have given to you, you will never experience forgiveness. And this is so powerful that Jesus says... At the, at the end of the prayer, look in verse 14. If you don't forgive other people and they sin against you, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. Wow. Wow. How can Jesus say that? I thought if I just prayed a prayer and believe that Jesus died for me, I can be a Christian. He's saying, now I forgive others too? Look at verse 15. If you don't forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Did you not catch it the first time? Let me make it really plain. How can Jesus make such a statement? He can make a such a statement like this, that if you don't first see all that Jesus has done for you, you can't give it to other people. And it's only until you see that Jesus has absorbed all of the wrath and the pain of, that you should have experienced, and he's not inflicting upon you, then you can actually grant people forgiveness. See, forgiveness in unreconciled relationships in the church are one of the primary, if not the primary thing that keep the name of God, the kingdom of God, and the will of God being done on earth as it is in heaven. Which is why when you read Paul, all of his letters are primarily centered around one thing, unity. Because it is the unity of the church, it is the oneness, it is the ability, in a sense, to get over yourself. You're not that important. You haven't been hurt that bad. Only Jesus is important. He's the only one who's been hurt really bad. And if you could just get over yourself and forgive others, we could actually be the church. And yet, because we hate other people, because they have done us wrong, we cannot be a people who truly pray, God, your will be done. Your kingdom come. So the second way, the second hindrance, the second distraction to God's mission being done is just us. It is our inability to forgive, which is why Jesus says, Father, give us the ability to forgive others as we have been forgiven by God. The third and final petition for us, or petition six, Jesus says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I think here we need to understand the third distraction is Satan, his demons, and their schemes. And I think oftentimes what this prayer does is it reorients our mind to see that the real enemy here is not the other person in the church. The real enemy here is not your spouse. As Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against two. The spiritual powers, Satan and his demons and their schemes. And he is constantly working to destroy unity and to cause us to worry about other things. And God says, Jesus asks us to ask God to pray that he would not allow him to do that, but deliver us. We need rescue as we go about our testing. 
Because God may send us into times of testing, and when he does, we can be assured that the evil one is right there waiting to pounce on us. Look at this on the next slide. What is Satan trying to do? He's trying to sift you as wheat, as he said to Peter. In 2 Timothy 2, he's trapping and capturing us to do his will. Acts 5, he's filling our hearts to lie to people. In 1 Corinthians 7, he's filling our minds to commit adultery on our spouses. In 2 Corinthians 4, he's blinding the minds of the people of this age so they could not see and know the gospel. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul wants to visit the church in Thessalonica, but you know why he can't get there? Satan's hindering them. Satan hinders us from actually being able to serve and to be and to instruct and encourage people. We need to recognize that this is a cosmic battle. There's a cosmic reality that is going on behind that other dimension that is influencing this dimension. And so we pray, God, rescue us. Because whether you think about that or not, there is a real enemy who is always working to destroy you and me and the church. He can't ultimately destroy it. That's been conquered at the cross. But you know what he can do? Is he might win the battle. And we need to pray that he would not win the battle and destroy us as a people. Jesus, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray that our lives would be centered around your name being known. Our lives being centered around your kingdom being demonstrated in our lives. That your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we make that our life, give us today's needs. Help us to love and forgive each other. And do not let the evil one destroy us. Father, thank you for letting us gather and for this passage that Jesus teaches us how to pray. And may this prayer direct and govern our minds and our hearts and our lives together as a people. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.